0: Welcome to DNA Clarity and Support. I'm your host Brian. Listen as I chat with authors and leaders in the DNA world about the family and personal impacts of DNA testing. You'll hear new stories, unique perspectives, find out about books, websites, organizations, other podcasts for those involved in the world of DNA. Please be sensitive to younger listeners as the conversations can get intense at times. This is a production of Watershed DNA. Learn more at WatershedDNA.com. This is Brian, and on today's episode of DNA Clarity and Support, we have Michael Blair. Michael is a husband, a father, a professor of graphic design, and an MPE who has written a memoir about his experience. And he's here to talk with us today about that memoir. It's called, I Had My Underwear On The Entire Time. A Memoir of Discovering Family Through Genetic Genealogy. And I hope we get a chance at some point, Michael, to touch on that title, because it's quite interesting.
1: Well, good. That was part of the whole idea to uh, get people, you know, just to pull something a little catchy to pull pull people in.
0: Exactly. Well, it definitely worked. So when you were 18, your mother told you one day while she was vacuuming the house that your dad wasn't your biological father. So is that where your story begins? Did it begin before that?
1: It began before that. So when I was 12, it was during Memorial Day. And my mom and dad took me to the cemetery. We're looking at some gravestones of my dad's dad who, who had passed away. And he had passed away in 1973. And he was like, well, you know, I'm sure. Sorry that he would talk to my mom that you and Mikey couldn't meet him. And the numbers didn't add up for me. I was like, hey, wait, I was born in 72. I would have met him, you know, type of thing. So I knew then and I started digging through their closet and found a a very weird delayed certificate of birth. I didn't find any adoption records or anything, but yeah, I I kind of figured it out when I was
0: 12. So you were around 12 when you figured it out, but you kept that a secret that you had figured it out
1: for no well, yeah, time. Yeah. How do you bring that up to your parents? You know, I'm just, it was just a weird, awkward thing. I, you know, they always kind of treated me as an outcast. I have two younger sisters. They were preferred over me throughout my life. So it was validating that way. But yeah, she was backing in the floor Turned off the vacuum and said, you know, Steve, not your real dad. I'm sorry, Craig, it's not your real dad. And I just said, I know. And I was so shocked and angry at that time. You know, I couldn't really form questions. So,
0: Do you have any idea what prompted her that particular
1: day? I have no idea. I remember watching MTV. There could have been, I think Sinead O'Connor was on during that time. And I think maybe that sparked something. Who knows? Who knows what it could have been? So it's some random spark, just like, oh, he's graduated from high school now. Well, I better tell him.
0: So maybe some milestone she had in her mind, but it's not anything that she ever shared with you later on. Yeah. In your book, you talk about how your adolescence was kind of a rocky time for you. And how much of that do you think you can attribute to the knowledge of your dad not being your biological father versus general adolescence growing up?
1: Quite a bit, you know, growing up with it and having this kind of secret identity and having that identity issue. People have identity issues anyway, growing up and especially that age, you know, I felt very alone. I didn't trust people, and it was yeah, it was not easy.
0: At what point did you decide to start searching for the identity of your biological father?
1: Well, the search started when when I discovered it. So when I was twelve, every person I, I looked at on the street was like, "Are you my dad? You know, do you look like me?" So yeah, it's it's been since then, but officially. Not until I was about 19 or so and had met my future wife. And she just really was encouraging and prompted a lot of questions, which was great. So, you know, she was very interested in it. So we just kind of jumped on the bandwagon and started hiring private investigators and tracking down any leads that we could find, which was very little.
0: I'm glad you brought up Amy. Because I feel like she's a really important piece of this story, too. She was the co-author on the book with you. So I imagine she was there with you and helping process as you were writing your memoir. Tell me what it was like to have Amy there alongside you as you were conducting your search and the supports in your life.
1: Uh, Yeah, she's very, very supportive and encouraging and pushy. (laughs) So having that, and I need that from time to time, I get lazy and complacent and, and, you know, having somebody nudge me every once in a while is a good thing. But yeah, you know, she was the one that saw the commercial for Ancestry DNA and it just popped into her head. She was like, oh, maybe, you know, he could find family this way. So we knew that was a kind of thing, more... Ethnicity, which I was interested in. I was like, okay, this is one way I could kind of find out, you know, what my background is or my heritage. But yeah, I didn't really think about family. So she was the uh, instigator behind that.
0: I think that's a really common experience where people have an interest first in the ancestral background or the ethnicity information from a DNA test. And then when the power of the test to connect you with biological family becomes more real, then that becomes another goal, I guess. I don't know if goal is a good word to use. It becomes another goal or another option for you to explore more about the people that you're connected to.
1: Absolutely.
0: So when did your DNA test experience begin? And which company or companies did you test
1: with? So yeah, uh, Amy was brining a turkey for Thanksgiving, and so you know, that's when the idea popped into her head. And then I got, <laughs> she bought me a test for Christmas. So day after Christmas, I spit in the tube. I had my results back in February. So yeah, it was all. And I got incredibly lucky and having a an aunt that, that matched me. So that was you know very. Awesome surprise.
0: Do you want to talk a little bit about your experience figuring out who your biological father was amongst a group of, was it multiple brothers?
1: Yeah, there was five brothers, five sisters and five brothers in this family. And they were all kind of similar in age. And it could have been any, well, there was one that was pretty young that we kind of ruled him out first because he would have been only seven. So we're thinking, yeah, that probably wouldn't work out. But yeah, there's a you know the the older four. We you know kept looking. We were stalking them on Facebook and you know just uh, trying to figure out any information that we could. When we found a picture of my biological father, I knew in half a heartbeat. I was like, that's the guy. You noticed but, yeah. the resemblance, right? But away. yeah, that that was you know just a visceral. Feeling I had, but uh, you know, going through my bio aunt's and having her be kind of the liaison between them all helped quite a bit, and we narrowed it down that way.
0: So, since we're on the topic of your biological father, and you go into more details of that story in the book, but your biological father and his wife were not interested in connecting with you or sharing the news with other family. What perspective did you develop on that after talking to others in the family? I'm thinking specifically of like Carolyn and Maurice.
1: Right. Well, the weird thing is is we started to connect at first and we were talking. My bio dad and me were having conversations on the phone. Every Sunday we would talk for, you know, like an hour just get to know each other. And I, was, I would just end the call with, can I call you next week? And he would say, sure. But he had to do it in secret. So he wasn't telling his wife. We made arrangements a few times to meet up and then he would cancel. Then he was like, finally, you know, I've got to tell my wife about this. I was like, yeah, you should. And that's when everything kind of went south. Yeah, she kind of pumped the brakes on that and wasn't on board for, for this whole situation. So things kind of ended that way. Also, he thought that maybe giving her a break over the summer would help her maybe calm down and maybe reevaluate later. That didn't help anything. I think it made it worse. But yeah, going through some of the other family members and connecting with them, it's interesting the fact that this family was already broken and a yeah, lot of them the siblings
0: didn't. and the, the 10 siblings in the family were both yeah. fractured. Not yes. your father, uh, uh, the father and his family. You're talking about the
1: the extent. I know. Well, kind of both, but yes, the, both. the 10 siblings, you know, two would be talking to each other and they wouldn't be talking to the rest of the gang. And there was always some rivalry going on and just a lot of drama, family drama. So going into that situation was hard enough. So, yeah, talking with Carolyn uh, was was fantastic. She was the first one I actually met in real life.
0: Was um, Carolyn the, the biological aunt you connected with first or is she someone uh, you connected with later?
1: No, she's the one I connected with later. So she reached out after I connected with my aunt in Washington. Carolyn also found out and contacted me and that's. And I was like, okay, sure, yeah, I'll meet with you. And she's, you know, just an hour away from me. So she was the first one I got to meet in real life. And she's been very, very supportive. Her and her husband and her family have been excellent. They've been they've been very welcoming. I'm glad. And then, yeah, and then Maurice would have been my grandfather's brother. So he'd be a great uncle. And he is just that. He's, he's, he's a great uncle. He will tell you anything in the world that you want to know and just very open-minded and you know a great person.
0: He seemed very wise the way you described him and some of the comments that he made to you. Can you recall any of the specific things that he said that made you feel better about the situation?
1: Well he would say things to the the effect of you know if your grandfather were here none of this drama would be happening and he would put the, you know, he would have gotten everybody on board. He would have loved you. And so that was very reassuring and just knowing that and going in and that kind of gave me a perspective of these siblings and how, what their relationship was. And, you know, it's, uh, you know, that was was kind of a, a cool thing.
0: So we've been talking about biological family for a little bit, I wondered if we could switch back and talk about your parents, parents who raised you, and if you could talk about the experience of discovering the, if you could describe what it was like to find the adoption paperwork when your stepfather adopted you legally. could you talk about that?
1: Yeah. So I had went down to the, the courthouse and I, well, before, prior to that, I had asked my parents, I was like, okay, was I adopted? And they were like, well, we think so. And it's like, well, what do you mean you think so? So I'm sure there was a judge involved, maybe some paperwork. Uh, do you remember go- going through that? And my dad goes, well, yeah, I kind of remember going to court and filling out some papers but, and I was like, well, do you have them? And he was like, no, they've moved so many different times that I think they just got, got lost in the shuffle. So yeah, going down to the courthouse and requesting the adoption records, I had to you know, say, I am not looking for my original birth certificate because I knew that was off the table here in Iowa. We, haven't things are-
0: changed recently? I think Iowa just, the latest state that has changed access to birth original birth certificate? Uh,
1: absolutely. and the time, at the
0: time, yeah. at the time yeah. you didn't right. have access.
1: Right, Yes, it didn't, it didn't happen. Well, uh, I'll circle back to that later. Okay. Um, but yeah, going to the courthouse and, you know, filling out the... They were like, oh, well, you need to go talk to juvenile court, not to vital records. They would probably have the adoption papers for you. So I ran up there and fill out this paperwork there was like three questions and there you know one of them was why do you want this information i just wrote down everyone deserves the right to know where they came from so i I submitted it didn't hear anything for you know a week or two and then i gave them a call and they said oh no it's with the judge i didn't think it was going to go in front of a judge and be you know a thing but it, it was approved so they called me back like a week later and said Come on down and get your records. So yeah, going down there and I had to leave a meeting. I was I was a huge staff meeting at, at the school. Every employee was there. I just got up and uh, I, left. Like, I got the phone call and bolted.
0: It was that important to you?
1: Oh, yeah. I could. could not so, so I ran down call. there. And, yeah. Sorry.
0: That's a big call to get. I understand why.
1: Right. So I ran down there and illegally parked, uh, ran ran in and got the paperwork and just, you know, I was just shaking, just having that excitement and having that tangible proof that I existed, that somebody wanted me, you know, is with everything.
0: I remember reading your book and that, part of the book in specific, and tearing up a bit because you described the words that were used, do you want to read some of what you read that day?
1: When I got the paperwork, it says, on this day, January 30th, 1978, this matter comes up for a hearing upon verified petition of the petitioner, Craig Ball Blair, the petitioner is the step parent of the minor child herein sought for adoption and is qualified to adopt said child. The petitioner is and able uh, to adequately provide for, rear, and educate said minor child. We pray for the adoption and it should be granted. From this day forward, the minor child Michael Lee Lang will have the surname of his natural mother and adopted father and be henceforth known as Michael Lee Blair. So this a very complicated feeling. It's weird to have that, you know, how much joy and you know a lot of answered, a lot, a lot of answered questions at that same time.
0: Yeah, I think complicated is a perfect word.
1: Right. Yeah. So, and then it, you know, kind of detailed my mom's story again in there. So it was it, her deposition kind of went through the story that she's been telling me my entire life, which I didn't know if, if it were true or not. So her, her story never changed. Her about story me. never changed about how you were conceived. Right. So that was very reassuring, too. And, you know, I've been mad at my mother for years and years and years. And that really was a huge band-aid.
0: I'm glad that you had that chance. Yeah. So for stepdads out there who are listening and are the father figure for their child, and they've always been the dad for their children, what do you hope they understand about the importance of their role in their kids' lives, even if there's no... DNA,
1: connection. I use the phrase, the people that show up are the right people. So the role of a step-parent is very difficult. And I have mad respect for for anyone that has adopted children. Be prepared for questions. Be honest. And don't, yeah, just don't lie to them. That's, everyone needs to know who they are. And being a step-parent, that's, I they have a responsibility to, to aid in that search.
0: Do you feel like you were ever trying to replace your father when you, do you feel like you're trying to replace your dad?
1: Not at all. And I, I think if you have a good relationship with your parents, this is not a replacement at all. Nobody is looking for that. Your adoptive parents love you and you know, you got to accept that and just you're on a journey to find out who you are. So, I mean, that, you know, the nature and nurture thing, it's a thing, you know, the nurture, it ebbs and flows. Sometimes it, you know, the, the nature wins out. So everybody got, you know, has to know kind of who they came from and what their heritage is. Love
0: that. I like the ebbs and flows. Yeah. Nature and nurture. Amy, can I pull you in for some questions? Because you've been such a big part of this project, too. Oh, no, this
2: isn't, I'm, okay. I'm going to put you on the screen. I not really planning on doing that. So. Hello. Hello. Right. You, you, no, you come back in, come back in. <laughs> I'll fine. Vibe.
0: So, Amy, you were a big part of Michael's decision to do DNA testing and search for biological family. And you were there for him all along the way. Did you ever sense that Michael was kind of not ready for what, where he was on the journey? Or do you feel like it was the right time for him in his life?
2: Well, when we first met and we were dating, he had really, he was 19 and I was 20. We were young. And he had just found, I mean, his mother had just told him the year before, you know, had told her and, you know, that when she was acting on the floor that day, and that since I'd only known him for, you know, a year after that, it was so fresh still in his hurt. He was really hurt. So I kind of fell in love when we fell in love with a kind of a, a guy who was already going through a major identity crisis. So our marriage kicked off with this guy who was very, very unsure of exactly who he really was. And he questioned it a lot. And I said, if you're still questioning, why don't you just ask her? He really did not ask her a lot of questions in the beginning. And so we started a notebook. We wrote down some questions. He asked her some questions. She gave him the story that she stuck to, you know, forever. Really, she just did not know his name. She could not recall this man's name. But I then said, your grandparents are alive. They met him because the guy had came and picked her up once, you know, for a date. And she mentioned that. So then we took the notebook to grandma and grandpa's house and interviewed them. We got all sorts of information. We knew that she had put an ad out in the paper when Craig was going to adopt him. And we knew that there had to be an ad out there. So we would go and like check microfish, you know, looking to see if we could find was there a guy's name on there? Or was it just a John Doe? So there were lots of clues that we got through the process. We knew where, she, you know, where he kind of was living when they, you know, because he had taken her back to the house that he was living. We scoured, you know, old Polk County assessors, things, trying to see if we could figure out if anybody, you know, could have like rented that house or owned that house, you know, could they still have renter, you know, information? We tried all sorts of weird things. It wasn't until we actually started having kids that it really started to... It wasn't so much me saying, do you want to try these things? It was him suddenly saying, I really want to know where I come from. Why does she look like this? What is she... You know, our first baby had a, a very strange jaundice called Coombs jaundice, where the bloods mix and she got very sick. And he was just like, is this, you know, what else does she have that maybe we don't know that, you know, these people have. And so he started, that's when he began starting requesting his original birth certificate and finding out why was he getting his original birth certificate? Why was it actually sealed? You know, he was raised by his biological mother. Why was his original birth certificate sealed? That part bothered us more than anything. So Though we thought it must be that the guy's name is on the birth certificate. And maybe she's not telling us exactly the whole story. Grandma and grandpa kind of had a you know different take on something where they said that the man had came back when he was five years old and wanted to know if uh, Diana had ever had the baby. And so he knew because she said, I told him that I was pregnant and he just took off. So there were just so many open-ended question that we had that nobody could seem to answer. And then I'd get pregnant, and I'd have a baby, and it would start it all over again for him, you know? And so becoming so, a
0: parent was really a big trigger for you, Michael, to decide that it was time to search, because you weren't only responsible for yourself at that point, you were also responsible for your children and concerned about their medical
1: family history. Absolutely, yeah. I want to know what kind of bug <laughs> got.
2: And it was hard to watch them and it was hard to get, you know, we hired private investigators. We went and petitioned the courts. We went to state representatives to find out what we could do to change the right to know law before we even really understood what was involved with it. We had people looking in to see why the birth certificate was sealed and everybody that would come back was just always, it was always bad. It was just, they could never give us a direct answer Nobody could help us. It's always been a mystery. It's always been a mystery. And so even like that day, so it was 2016 in November of 2016 when I was riding that turkey. And I literally just was watching, I was filling my bucket up with water and I could see the living room. And I saw a lady come up on Ancestry commercial and I was, you know, she was like, I thought I was Norwegian, but I'm Nigerian. And then I found a cousin who lives, you know, two blocks away. And I was just like, What does she mean? She found a cousin, and that's when I just typed in, you know, can ancestry DNA find family? And then I saw this whole thing: adoptees are using it to find family. And so when he came up, I was just like, "Oh my god, I found a way!" Yeah,
0: guys, it was like a short and that had not been opened before.
2: Yeah, (laughs) you you know, it was just under the radar for us. We didn't. And we didn't even understand, even like when he spit in the in the cup and it sent it and it came in, we didn't even know what we were going to see. And so we actually went to the ethnicity first and looked at that. And then we went to matches and it was really late at night when we got it. And we saw that it's a first cousin, and we thought that his aunt was going to be a first cousin. But I remember we were like, Oh, my God, this is so exciting. First, we got to go to sleep. We get a good night's work. That's what it's all like. And so all the result years, is so late at night. Uh, 25 years, seriously, of like trying to get this answer. And we see our first major clue. And we're like, yay, let's go get a good night's oh,
0: work. Yeah. Well, having done some family searches using DNA, you have to be well rested to really be able to start putting the pieces of the puzzle together.
2: Yeah. I understand. But I didn't ever think that he wasn't ready until we were like six weeks into the discovery. And then I started wondering if he was really, if he was really ready. Because it started to, he started to kind of crumble pretty quick. And as the roller coaster of it happened, it was, it was tough to watch. It was tough to watch. Well, the demise because as it as it ended, and he would reach out to his brothers and things like that, and it was almost like dealing with all of those people that we had asked for help before and got our door closed. It was like that again, except it was family, and I mean like close family that was closing the door, and it. It just filed him, and so it is, it's a tough thing to go through, even when you were the most ready. Yeah,
1: you know, rejection is hard on its own, but when you're rejected by a parent and by your, you know, your half siblings, it's it's uh, triple, it's triple hard.
0: <laughs> do you think that if you had worked with a therapist, it would have had a different outcome, or do you feel like it would have been the same either way?
1: I think it would have been the same either way. Um, I'm thankful that I had counseling after the fact, you know, I, that was amazing. I didn't, I wasn't in a good headspace at the time. My therapist did help me a ton. And yeah.
0: For listeners who haven't Connected with a therapist yet? Could you share a little bit about how you found someone to work with? Because that can be the hardest part, finding, finding your way to a counselor or a therapist.
1: Well, I started off with my primary care physician, and she suggested somebody that worked in their clinic. So I met with this the therapist who I think graduated the week before. She did not know how to help me. And she, she basically told me, she actually wrote me a prescription to drink more water as I left. So, uh, yeah, that the first one didn't go well. So, yeah, you do have to kind of shop around and, and find somebody that has the credentials and kind of knows a little bit about what's going on uh, to help them. I found somebody that, that had an MDR experience, so... We did some, some exercises that way. So
0: that was, that was helpful too. So it started with primary care, but then you did some searching on your own later to find someone that was a better fit.
2: Yeah, and I have- terms,
0: I'll also put a link in the show notes that goes to a site that has a list of counselors and therapists that specialize in the area of supporting uh, people with a misattributed parentage experience or not parent expected discovery. So it's mpecounseling.org. And there's that list has just come available in the past couple of years, that group of therapists. So that was not available at the time that you were looking. Correct, yeah. So you had the support of Amy, you had the support of a therapist, and then there were some people in the family that you reached out to and in the family around you that were there with guidance. So it kind of struck me that Carolyn and Maurice, they really stuck out as the ones who seemed to get it in a way that other relatives didn't. Could you tell us a little bit more about these two people and how is your relationship with them now?
1: Relationship with them now is is wonderful. So they're very they're very open. We we meet up often. You know, every couple months we get together. Probably the you know the, the aunt that I matched with. We have that's the the strongest relationship I have throughout this whole process. So her and I have a lot of similar traits, and so we just gel immediately. And you know I've been out to Washington a few times to, to visit her. Her and her family they've been crazy supportive and has helped me tremendously. But yeah, Carolyn and Maurice they are also just fantastic people, very open, very welcoming. And I, yeah, I am so thankful for them.
0: That's great. Let's talk about the resources and supports that mean a lot to you. What about your work on right to know legislation and the adoptees coalition of Iowa? What led you to become an advocate and what kind of work do you do with them?
1: I would say counseling support groups help totally. The NPE fellowship has helped quite a bit. I've been doing uh, some sensory deprivation techniques and meditation, and acupuncture. So tried a lot of different things that that have really helped me out. But for the you know the right to know, I've had a former student who was an adoptee who did not know who her biological parents were and was on, on her search, on her journey. So we, we uh, started talking. She started heading up this um, the coalition. She's the one that started to advocate for birth records to be unsealed in Iowa. So I've helped her out quite a bit, especially my story. So having uh, an adopted father and living with my birth mother, and not having access to my original birth certificate, I think really kind of tipped the scales and pushed some some people over uh, to our side.
0: So what happened in Iowa in the state? Was it 2020 that it changed over?
1: Yeah, so it's been on the, it's been up for discussion every year for 25 years, and it kept getting tabled or stalling somewhere. And finally, in, in 2020, we got enough people to support it and to write their congressmen. It does work, and to just share stories. And like I said, you know, my story helped out quite a bit in convincing some people that it needed to be passed. So it's still a little. Write your
0: congressperson is that that important point for adoptees and that live? Write your congressperson is an important. Oh yes. People who live in states where there is not yet an open access
1: law yeah. advocate for yourself and write your congress people and you know got to convince them i mean the, the change starts with you
0: so telling your story for the purposes of helping to advance right to know in the state of Iowa is that what led to your story becoming a book do you think that's where it has its origins or was the book no. started before that <laughs>
1: Not at all. So, you know, along the way, we documented quite, you know, quite a bit. So we had a lot of research already done. When COVID-19 hit and we were in lockdown, we just, just decided to write it all down. It took uh, six weeks to, to write down and we, we wrote it and we put it away for three months. and We didn't look at it and then went back, read it again. Uh, and then started editing, and that, that took uh, about six months
0: to do. You should feel very proud of yourself for telling your story publicly. I know it's not easy to do that, so I hope you do know that it's appreciated by people like myself and other people who will read the book.
1: Yeah, I'm not yeah. I'm not doing this. You know, I didn't write the book for you know fame and fortune <laughs> by any means. It was you know to, to help other people. And just to share my story, you know, it, the, I think the hardest part was telling my parents that I wrote a book about this. They weren't exactly thrilled. So, and
0: have your parents read it yet, they just know it exists?
1: My mom has read it. And my dad won't read it. So he said he said he doesn't want to be mad at me. I was like, "You're the hero in this whole thing. <laughs> you come out good in it. Why don't you sit down and read it?"
0: Well, the fact that you still have a relationship with your parents, and I think that goes to show a lot about the kind of person that you are and parents that are having kind of a rocky time in adolescence with their kids, you know, hold on hope that.
1: Well, one thing to think about, too, is people put their parents on a pedestal and you got to realize that people are, you know, parents are humans. They make mistakes. Things happen. Things happen humans have sex and they make babies sometimes. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's, you, you got to kind of keep that in mind when everything is when you're in your near dark space and, and just like, okay, you know, maybe I'm overthinking this, you know, and, and you know, look at the bigger picture.
0: Look at the bigger picture and there's always a light at the end. Right. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Michael. It's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you too, Amy, for popping in and uh, playing along. I put you on the spot, but you did a great job.
1: Well, thank you for all that you do.
0: You're welcome. Thanks for listening to today's episode of DNA Clarity and Support Podcast. Head on over to WatershedDNA.com to learn more about the resources and support available for those involved in DNA discoveries.